Welcome back to Who the Hell is This For? Uh, today we are starting off our new format. So our episodes are going to look a little bit different uh, here on out, and I will talk about that a little bit more in just a second. But I wanted to plug two things. First, as always, um, we plug charities that you guys can donate to. Uh, and if you donate, we will. Uh, it will be a little bit different because it won't be a movie recommendation now, but a subgenre, a director, something you want us to dive into a little bit more. Uh, if you make a donation to a worthy cause, uh, send us the receipt at WTHITFpod on Twitter. Uh, with a suggestion of something that you want us to do an episode over. And uh, right now, I would highly recommend that that is going to any organization uh, in Texas that is supporting trans youth um, in the wake of some really, really just awful, evil legislation that's coming through down there. Um, So if you make a donation to any official trans supporting organization in Texas, um, please send us that receipt and we would love to do an episode over a topic of your choice. And on another note, we are going to be doing a charity golf event. Uh, Jeff and I will be joining the boys of Debates on Tap, First Issue Club, and Nightmare Junkhead for an event at Cinderblock Brewing in North Kansas City at 1 p.m. on March 6th. Uh, you can come support us uh, by donating. You can come to the event and donate to Hope House to score us points, remove points from our score, uh, whichever one will benefit us more in the game of golf. And I believe you can add strokes to the other team's scores. Uh, It's going to be really cool. Uh, Hope House is a domestic violence shelter here in Kansas City. Uh, So really cool cause. Some really cool prizes are also going to be up for grabs, including free beer for a year from Boulevard. Uh, In Debates on Tap's most recent episode, it sounds like that will be 48 beers a month that you can redeem however you want. Sounds like maybe tap room, maybe like 12 packs. Uh, so God that is damn. no like small prize. That's not like one beer a week for the entire year. That's these prizes are going to be nuts. That's so incredible. you should absolutely come and attend. And, you know, I'm sure I will probably uh, enter to try and win the uh, free beer for a year. Cause just what an insane prize. There will also be a signed picture of uh, our own Riley, uh, since he will not be able to be in attendance, there will be an autographed picture uh, that you can bid on and raffle for. Uh, stay, keep posted on that. I may make it an NFT for, oh, God for purchase. And that would be the end of the podcast. <laughs> I'm actually releasing a line of my own NFTs from this podcast. <laughs> Just out of context quotes from Riley. Yeah. <laughs> And once you buy them, they're removed from the episode. (laughs) (laughs) Just a really long beat throughout. (laughs) They just get purchased by somebody very rich who also hates listening to you on the podcast. (laughs) That's right, folks. Pay to shut me up. It's all going for a good Uh, cause. Yeah. So a couple were just worthy causes to keep in mind. One that both are time sensitive uh, because who knows how fast they're going to try and move on this legislation in Texas. And, you know, then the other event is going to be localized to just that March 6th date, but you can make donations to Hope House at any time because it is a great organization to support. So now that we have gotten that covered, Let's break down how the podcast is going to look here on out because we are changing things up. Uh, We decided it was time to shake up the format and really just you can view this as who the hell is this for 2.0. This is essentially a new podcast. We the past few years have just been us, you know, figuring it out. 
getting the, getting our feet under us, and now we're ready to start the podcast. Settling into season six. <laughs> That's right. We're starting season seven right now. Uh, <laughs> by the time this episode so, releases, season eight. Move by the fast, time folks. you finish listening, season nine. Uh, so we are going to break down topics such as specific genres, subgenres, directors, um, an era of film, maybe a decade of certain year that was particularly good, uh, series, franchises, whatever. Uh, but we are going to then, we're each going to select a movie that we think really fits or something we want to talk about uh, in relation to that genre or director, whatever, uh, with one movie each. And then we will watch all three of them. And then when we watch all three of them, We'll come to the episode, um, break down the topic in general. Uh, Jeff uh, picked the topic of heist and is going to be kind of running the show uh, once we get moving here. And then we will, so Jeff will talk about, you know, types of heist films, uh, the anatomy of a heist film, what the major plot points are, um, deviations from the formula, and then we'll uh, break into discussion on each of the movies we pick. So we're really excited about how this new format is going to look. All right, so as we get started, as Ty wrote down, we have a, a, a specific format we're going through. What we wanted to do first was kind of break down what types of heist films are out there, right? So there is sort of the traditional heist film that exists, and we'll kind of get into that in the, the anatomy of a heist film, but there's sort of what I would consider three buckets, and I'm calling these buckets the noble heist. Uh, the next bucket is this time it's personal, and then the third bucket is are we the baddies? Um, and so we're going to break down what, what these, what these three buckets are. The Noble Heist, um, very familiar format, primarily about robbing a villain and or the government, right? So robbing it in a way that the person who is getting hurt or the entity that is being hurt is an uncaring entity that it doesn't really matter, right? We're, we are rooting as the audience for this to happen because we want the heist to be successful. The second one is, this time it's personal, has very close ties with the noble heist, right? Sometimes things kind of cross between the two. Um, but generally, it's around the heister or person who is kind of performing the heist has some kind of vendetta against the owner of the thing that they are stealing, or they are stealing to help someone, or they will die if they don't. Um, very common, like I said, uh, kind of ties in well with the noble heist. Then the third type of heist is um, are we the baddies and that's where there's no real nobleness necessarily in the heist there's nothing uh, you are rooting for the people who are committing the heist because uh, they're stealing for fun they're either stealing to just enrich themselves in general or they might be bad people uh, we, we are sometimes led to believe they're kind of like an anti-hero or sometimes we find out that they actually really are just huge pieces of shit and you just have to figure out whether or not you're gonna root for them or not so some examples of each one if we look at the noble heist, uh, we're going to be talking about one of those today, and Riley, I'm interested to see if you think it fits in this category or not, but I think we would say that maybe like Fast Five kind of fits the noble heist archetype, right? They are robbing from a villain, uh, that villain is kind of tied in with the government, and there is no point we are not rooting for the heisters to be successful in this heist. I have, Correct. I have another, I have one I want to throw in for consideration um, because thinking about, and we'll talk about it a little bit more, but my pick, uh, the castle of Cagliostro, uh, that one, I don't know if it fits any of those. And so you keep going, but I have, okay. I have where I think it fits. Okay. And 
I and this could fall under the this this time it's personal. Oh, you do have it on there. Um, but I so it's not necessarily a person, but a place he's tried to rob before. And I so it's like, you know, coming back and more of personal in the sense of, okay, this time I can I'm getting it. Like mm-hmm. no you know, he's think- he's fixing his past mistakes. I, I think that one actually it almost it, it actually jumps buckets, you know, right. about halfway through. It starts mm-hmm. as this is personal this time it's personal and then actually ends in a in more of a noble bucket. Right. And that's why those are so are so tightly intertwined because especially if the heist crew is more than one person, you'll often have more than one motivation happening within the heist movie. Uh, another great example of that is like Inside Man, which is more like the robbers are the baddies, right? And you're mm-hmm. you're thinking like, oh, like they're just committing this robbery because they want to steal what's in the bank. And then you find out the reason that they're stealing what's in the bank is for a noble purpose. So often heist movies don't end up in one total bucket. They may be in more than one or they may shift halfway through like you called out, Riley. I think, and so you have Baby Driver under Are We the Baddies? Uh, but I, I like that one because I think it starts as a noble heist and then you realize it's really not. And that's another great one because obviously Baby is is more of a noble character mm-hmm. in that he's he's stealing money so that he can help his uh is it's is it actually his grandpa or is it just an elderly person that he lives with? I I think it is just an elderly person who I believe elderly put him in. Right. Yeah. And so he he is stealing for a noble purpose, right, which is to get money for to care for his elderly friend. He's also like kind of being held it's also a little bit of this time it's personal because he's being held kind of against his will a little bit by the person organizing the heists and then you have everyone else who is just committing heists to steal money right and so you have complicated motivations based off of whose perspective we're taking as part of the heist so when you hear people say heist movies are uh are, are too basic and uh there's a, a great rick and morty episode about like how the plots get like really like built on themselves type of thing <laughs> but um I, I think that they the heist genre is actually very wide especially if you expand your definition of it just slightly for sure i i think that is all a really great breakdown of you know the three big types of heist movies but you know like you said they can it's so fluid and you can change within a movie and within acts of a movie because there are some of these that I think each act of the movie and by design fits into a different bucket of kind of this sub sub genre of heist. Right. And that's another, that's a great lead into kind of the anatomy of the heist film and, and deviations from that formula. Right. Because there may be like the, the heist movie as we think of it, right. A great example of a classic heist movie would be like the oceans movies, right. Mm-hmm. Oceans 11 is kind of, uh, especially for like our generation, right? They kind of grew up when that movie first came out. It's a great example of the genre because it kind of follows the major beats of a, of a heist movie. So the major beats that I've kind of written out, and there are differences within this, right? You have the first initial meeting of the master thief. There's almost, almost always a master thief that is kind of leading a crew or they're doing it solo. So it's something like Ocean's Eleven, you meet Danny Ocean like in the first beat, Right, mm-hmm. and you find out that he's a thief, and then they kind of go go from there. So you meet the master thief. That's almost always what happens at the beginning of a th- heist movie, unless 
they have an initial heist within the first two minutes of the film, which is a thing that I think is happening more and more as you see heist films, um, especially um, because they're trying to do some big burst of action at the beginning mm-hmm. of the movie. And so sometimes when you're meeting the Master Thief, it is during their first heist. Which, mm-hmm. which is something that for my money, like I think that is my favorite way to start a heist movie um, because it's not only does it open you know, really engagingly, but it does such a good job of introducing you to your character and breaking down what they are like without exposition, without anything like that. It just, it gives you so much of what type of, what their personality is. I totally agree. I think you get some films where like, especially if it's a a master thief with the crew, like the master thief will be like very calm and there'll be people in the crew that are like freaking out, you know, something's not working right, a tool isn't working, the cops are coming, whatever it might be, right? And you're totally right that that first, that first meeting of the Master Thief and the initial heist, if it's part of the movie, are great ways to establish the tone and the characters within the working movie. And I, think- I will definitely talk at that a little bit more at length in, in a bit in a later segment. I was just going to say, I think, I think the town does a really good job of giving you that intro of personality while also giving you the big bang of a high sequence to start the movie. Yep. Um, you have Ben Affleck, who's all in control, and then you can tell right off the bat that Jeremy Renner's the he's going to be the loose cannon. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's another trope that I, I love is the, a tandem heist crew. Where, like, there is a master thief that you're kind of working with, but there's, like, a close compatriot, especially if there's, like, a bigger crew, but there's, like, a duo running it. Those duos, there's almost always one who's smooth and one who is, like, the loose cannon, like you said. Like, that's a very familiar formula Mm. for these types of movies. I think what I like about the Oceans franchise is that it has the one who's smooth and then the one who is also smooth. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that movie is predicated on, like, just... Just being like, what if George Clooney and Brad Pitt were both the master thief in this movie? What if, what if bank robbers were hot? What if the two <laughs> most charming actors you could think of were thieves? <laughs> Steal me away, man. Um, so yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I think there's the that opening beat that happens in these movies. Another movie that I promise that we will not talk about the whole time. I did not choose it as one of my movies for that reason, but a movie that we talk about all the time in this podcast is Heat, right? And Heat is probably one of my favorite movies of all time, obviously one of my favorite heist movies, but Heat is a great example of an initial heist. We we do kind of meet the Master Thief, we meet um, Robert De Niro's character, Neil, um, but it, it pretty quickly r- drives right into that initial heist, and that initial heist is so iconic that you see multiple other movies copying it like almost beat for beat right like i know it's a movie that tyler loves like very dearly but the dark knight right is very (laughs) clearly influenced by heat in its very first scene because it starts off a superhero movie with a heist um which is a deviation from the i wonder why that's the best part of the dark knight (laughs) michael mann's the dark knight that's right michael mann facts nolan facts (laughs) So at the beginning of the heist film, we'll kind of we're going to go through some of the rest of these plot points. But that's kind of the, the beginning. You almost always have a meeting of the master thief and potentially an initial heist. Um, if there is not an initial heist, the next thing that happens is almost always the picking of the major heist target. 
So in a heist film, there is generally a heist there of building two. Not always, right? That's a deviation from the formula. But there is generally one big thing they are trying to steal or one last heist that they're trying to commit, right? Another trope of heist movies is that there's almost always, like, the master thief is, is usually like a grizzled thief that kind of wants to stop, right? And so they're trying to, to do something that will set them up so that they can quit um, committing heists. Do you think that that happens enough and is distinct enough to have another separate sub-subgenre, another bucket that is one more job? Yeah, it, it's a great, great point. And I would say the, the one more job kind of falls into the are we the baddies? Because at that point, like, it's clearly about benefiting themselves, benefiting themselves so they can stop right mm -hmm. they're they're not and i say we are the baddies it's either that the robbers are bad people or that they're stealing for their own personal gain right which doesn't always make them bad people but it does lead them to a life where they have gotten themselves into potential trouble and they're like i gotta stop like right. baby driver where he gets in over his head trying to do right. something noble and then he the people he's working with continue to escalate until they are beyond reprehensible like john ham right Right, exactly. Yeah, another good example of Are We the Baddies is is the town, like you mentioned, mm -hmm. Riley. Those are guys who are doing it because they're good at it. Ben Affleck wants to be done, so he's trying to do one last job to get out of it. You've got, like, Bonnie and Clyde that are, like, they are really killing and stealing for fun. And you've got something like Logan Lucky, which is the, the characters are all, like, good and kind people, but they are trying to commit a heist that they feel like won't actually hurt anybody. Like they're stealing from a, a motor speedway, right? Which isn't mm -hmm. quite a government, but it's also something that has insurance that they view as like morally okay, right? And they're doing it to set themselves and their families up so that way they can, you know, spend more time with them and things like that. It's the heat justification. It's the, right. I'm not taking your money, I'm taking the bank's money. Right, right. Which is a, a central theme that happens in a lot of these movies that, the thieves try to justify why they are not morally incorrect, right? Mm -hmm. And in some cases, we, we believe them and we agree with them, right? Like, Mad Money is a great example. That's probably more in the um, noble heist, right? Where this money is just going to be destroyed. I might as well steal it for myself. That There's another one that does almost a, a similar um, style thing um, called Blue Collar, um, which I don't think you guys have seen, but it's totally up your alley. It's is that, basically does like, that have Ben Stiller? Or did Ben Stiller um, direct Mad Money? Is that what I'm thinking? That's a great question. I don't Stiller know. Stiller is Mad... attached to some heist project. I don't remember. That's which. Tower Heist. Tower Heist, okay. I think is what you're With thinking Eddie of. Murphy. It's, okay. um, it's fine. Um, <laughs> it's, it's I love how tower... dedicated you are to the genre that you still will like watch those in your like, well, in it the is canon a heist of movie. Jeff's I'll heist be, I'll be honest. Yeah. I forget, I forget, I might have honestly seen Tower Heist in theaters. I'm being totally honest. I may have. And I remember getting done with it and being like, that was, that was fine. I'm Alan Alda's, Alan, or Alan Alda's the bad guy in it, which is, it's not uncompelling, right? It does read a little bit like one of those movies before Netflix came around, where like, they just like threw a bunch of shit at a wall and they're like, fuck it, let's just make that movie. The mid-budget studio comedy. Yes, exactly. Which, I, Which is, we could do a whole episode on the mid-budget right, studio right. comedy itself. I'm going to make one more point about Blue Collar because I got sidetracked and then we'll go back into the, the plot points. But Blue Collar is something I would recommend to everyone. It is, it is not necessarily a feel-good movie, um, but it is 
three workers at like an auto um, manufacturer and they're like members of a union and basically the union's fucking them over and their company's fucking them over and they're like let's just like steal from basically like the union bosses um and then like they there's like a bunch of complications which is another thing that we'll talk about with the anatomy of the heist movie and um they basically like become the problem is kind of where that movie sort of ends up so it's it's worth your time it's um uh richard pryor uh harvey keetle and oh Yathic- yes okay. and I, Koto. I know exactly the movie you're talking about now yes yeah it is it's worth your time so Anyways, as we get back to kind of the, the anatomy of the heist film, we've got our plot points, right, of meeting the master thief. We have an optional initial heist. We have the picking of the major heist target, right, which almost always gets down into why it's impossible, right? Like, if we get into the heist that we can't break into and pass the sensors that we can't beat and pass the guards that are going to see us, you know what I mean? Like that kind of thing. Mm. So once they've picked the major heist target, there's almost always a meeting of the crew or assembling of the crew. And that may be the same people from the initial heist, or it may be brand new members. Um, Which, done well, can be as satisfying as the successful heist itself. Yes. As, yes. In a, as a sequence in a movie, when done well, is just so... Un- and I mean, Oceans does this better than I think anybody it's it's commonly done as a montage, right? Which as montages go, right? You've got you've got crew assembly, you've got training for a fight, and then you've got I mean there's a couple others, but like those are the major ones that people think of when they think of montages, right? I guess like a sports team like beating teams to get up to the big game is another like oh, common yeah. montage. But like that's that's what that is, right? It's commonly done. So I agree totally. I think there are, are great assembly films and riley's pick for this i think has a great crew assembly in fast five that i would love to talk about later all right so um in the rest of the heist film the rest of the anatomy of the heist film we've got them practicing the heist and or doing recon um there's almost always a complication or plan change right and that happens usually right before the heist execution where they have to do something different then they get into executing the full heist they have something in the heist that goes wrong, and then they have the impact of you know that thing going wrong, or impact of the heist, um, or a double cross, or actually the heist went great, right? And that's that's where the real like fraying of the threads of this type of movie happens is in that final heist. That's where you really land your specific genre that you're going to be in is what's the result of the heist because not all of these always go well. Sometimes that's cathartic for the viewer that it didn't go well and sometimes it's devastating so it can really just depend i i think you absolutely nailed it down i mean we've talked about it on the podcast before but you are you are no novice when it comes to heist like you are very well when it comes to heist movies i should say um fbi don't jail jeff Um, (laughs) i have never once committed a heist myself (laughs) But I mean, you like you, you, all of this has come from like years of you just really diving in with the heist genre. And I do have a letterbox list of heist slash caper films. Now it's inflated because it's caper films, which is yeah. going to boost it up. But let and me capers see how can many... be a whole thing itself as well. Right. Yeah. And and then really, what I'm I'm considering a caper is if there is not a 
a set thing to go grab as part of the thing, then it, it really can't be considered a heist movie. And that point becomes more of a caper. Like a, a great caper that we've done is, um, what's the one that we did that had Paul Newman and Robert Redford? Oh, the sting. sting. Yeah. So the sting would be more of a caper, right? Because even though they're conning people out of money, there's not necessarily like a central location that they are stealing the money mm -hmm. from. Right. And that's kind of where I would draw the line between the two. I think some people could argue it, but overall I think it is more of a caper. Uh, Another movie we've done that is definitely, I think, falls under caper is uh, Midnight Run. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. For sure. All right. So, so before oh, before we get into our movies, Jeff. Uh, one one quick thing. Okay, we're talking about it. We're talking about my list in Letterboxd. Oh, I'm yes. You're sure welcome to follow if you want to. This is a heist caper movie list that has 273 <laughs> films in it, and I have only seen... 66 of them so i'm working my way through i'm only i'm almost at 25 percent of my way through but plenty of things to go look at there's a lot of old stuff on here that's hard to find which i'm maybe having to get like a library card to go and get some of the yeah. stuff <laughs> <laughs> so what Sorry. i was going to say no no problem at all uh, i think that list is such a great resource for people to have because that's i mean i've found so many things on there that i would not have you know picked up on otherwise um being the high subgenre being something I enjoy, but I'm not, you know, totally immersed in. Um, but anyway, Jeff, now give us, you know, we've got the formula. We've got what makes a heist movie. But what about the deviations from that formula? Because, you know, a lot of times the movies do want to do something clever and be like, okay, cool, I'm going to take this tried and true thing, and now I am going to twist it and see what I can get. Yeah, so I would say the, the two most common that you're going to see is – using a heist as a plot point for a non-heist movie. So The Dark Knight, I think, is probably a great example. That that movie is not about heists, right? That movie is about Batman and the Joker and crime. It's about and farts like and being bad. <laughs> but that's a movie that uses a heist to establish characters, but does not lean into that style of movie. Um, another good one that's actually one of my favorites that I, I have tried to consider whether or not I would do as a heist movie is um, there's a really great, I'm messing up the name of it, there's a really great um, Korean heist movie that I talked about on my favorites from, I think, two years ago mm -hmm. called Time to Hunt. And that's a movie where there, it's kind of like a Are We the Baddies? Basically, these four guys like knock off a casino, a Korean casino, and they send an enforcer after them that's essentially like John Wick. And then the rest of the movie is like a cat and mouse, like trying to track them down and kill them type of thing. So that's, again, like there's these these deviations from the formula where a heist is in the movie, but it is not really a heist movie. And something that I think you'll see a lot that Time to Hunt has is essentially the aftermath of either a successful or failed heist, right? And especially a failed heist then becomes more of a chase movie where they are trying to run away um, they're trying to get away with whatever they, they got. Sometimes they'll get to the heist and find out there's nothing there. And they're like, fuck, we're fucked. They knew we were coming. And then the whole, like, it shifts on its axis and becomes a totally different type of movie. Um, I'd say, yeah, a movie in that, in that genre, you could look at the Netflix movie, Triple Frontier. Exactly. Uh, a great, a great example. Or, and that's I, mean, one that's I think a really notable example as well is Reservoir Dogs. Yes, Reservoir Dogs is all aftermath. Right. 
Right. And you're so and, you're having to piece together what even happened throughout that entire movie. It's that's one I I would like to revisit. I I was doing a rewatch around Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and it wasn't as high for me as I expected on rewatch. But I might I might give it another try and see where it lands after another couple of years. That's a movie that I think has really been like mythologized or mythologized in like people's memory, right? And the movie mm-hmm. they remember is like the very memeable parts of it, right? Like the the conversation about tipping at the beginning. Mm-hmm. You have the Steelers wheel stuck in the middle with you and the dancing. And then you get into the actual movie and you're like, oh, this is very this is very different from like those points, right? Yeah. Like the movie is very expansive in other directions. And I think I think that's why I keep revisiting it every couple of years is because I remember those parts and the things I really liked about the movie. And then I rewatch it. I'm a little disappointed. I forget again and then do it all again in a couple of years. <laughs> Something that I, so I just thought of this and I, I don't know how valid of a take it is, but while not being a heist, I think there's a lot of heist DNA in the Charlie work episode of always sunny. <laughs> <laughs> well, cause it's all set up. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. all set up, and I mean, that goes so much into the actual production of the episode, too, being a single take, and I think that's what makes it feel like a heist, and there are all these moving parts that make it work, and, you know, the impetus of the episode is that they're doing a, uh, like, stake and airline miles scam, uh, which, I mean, is as big as you can go on Always Sunny. That's their their level of heist that they'll rise to. Yeah, I think I think you're totally right in that a heist movie's DNA can fit well into other genres, which is that there's a plan, the plan has to be executed perfectly in order for it to work, and if at any single point something doesn't go right, it's all going to blow up in their face. And that's a great example of, you know, TV episodes will kind of steal that quite a bit. Um there's a, a couple other ones. Uh, have you guys ever seen um American Animals? No, heard of that one? it's no. been on my list for a while. So this is a really interesting one. American Animals is, um, it's like three things. It's like a mockumentary, and it's also about a real heist that these like college students who like didn't really know each other like tried to pull off. And so they do like real life interviews with the people who are involved in it, and then they cut back to like dramatized versions of it. So it's like. It's kind of both. Like, it's not just a documentary because they are dramatizing it, but it's not just a full narrative because they've got the real people involved as well. It's really interesting. It's actually in the library if you guys want to check it out. Um, okay. But but definitely very interesting. Another thing I just thought of is uh, often overlooked is uh, the perfect score where they steal the uh, SAT answers. Yes, that's another and good one. You know, there is I a, don't know if it's good on rewatch or if it holds up at all. But the perfect the perfect score is interesting because it's 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 almost like it's got comedy elements to it. Mhm. You know what I mean? Like it's it's a a caper thriller, but it's like funny. And, and that's something it, that I feel like it's almost like, like a parody of the heist genre being a yeah. thing like this being, you know, SAT answers and not Just how you're just how you're describing it, I can tell that there is a Mission Impossible ripoff <laughs> of them lowering someone on a harness. I've no. The perfect score? Yeah. 
I feel like you would like it, actually. I'm almost certain there is a scene like that, if I remember right, where they're coming in through a skylight. Yeah. Uh, but the, I mean, the highlight of the film is the comic relief character who provides one of my favorite lines in movies. <laughs> that is when, um, when asked about his dreams and goals, he talks about Street Fighter and the video game designers and Blanca. And they're like, cool, so you want to make video games? And, no, I want to be Blanca. <laughs> all time line and just i'm sure there's a lot of problems with that character now <laughs> that wouldn't hold up but yeah all right is so it time to get to... into movies i think so i think i'd be kind of curious to to get into our three picks which i don't know have we announced our three we picks have not we've we have not actually we've referenced all of them but we haven't said what our picks are. So oh, one well, right before we do that, one trope I thought of that we did not mention um, with heist movies is the uh, authoritative figure yes. letting the mastermind know that they're close. Yeah. Uh, and the mastermind, you know, one way or another telling them good luck or, you know, we're going to get away. Yeah. That's even... Uh, that's a great trope. I'm glad you yeah. called that out. Uh, a great example. Do you have an example that you were thinking of with that one before I get mine? Uh, I mean, you have a few. Um, one of our movies that, one of our movies, um, you have Hobbs and Dom. <laughs> I don't know who's one of ours. <laughs> uh, you know, basically could it be? tugging each other off the whole movie. <laughs> A lot of sexual tension there. Um, That's the real heist. And then another movie we talked about, you know, the town, John Hamm and Ben Affleck have this kind of cat and mouse thing throughout. Yeah. I think uh, another, I mean, if we're going to use the examples that we've used so far, right, you've got um, in Heat, the owner of the Bearer Bonds, who is like, who are these fucking guys that think they can rip me off? And he sends his own goons. You've got Terry Benedict in the Ocean series. Yeah. Who, like, that's a very, like, very much, this time it's personal, right? Because mm-hmm. he's taken Danny Ocean's wife, or not taken, but is dating Danny Ocean's wife. And he calls him and says, like, listen, you might have gotten away, like, with the stuff in my vault, but, like, I'm going to hunt you down, basically. And so you've, you sometimes you've got the pre-threat. Sometimes you've got during, where the heister calls the owner mm-hmm. of the item and be like, hey, I just stole your shit fuck you and then you've got the the vindictive like you will never be safe and i will come and find you which is all that oceans 12 is too which is awesome oh it's right i I have warmed a lot on oceans 12 because of that element i think yeah i definitely agree i i don't think it's if people are like it's the worst oceans movie that that I can maybe understand, but if people say it's a bad movie, I don't agree with that at all. I think it's still stands alone on its own as a, a good movie personally. Yeah. Also, it's one of the only like that and um, oh, what am I thinking of? That and Entrapment are probably the two movies that f- like focus on like the physical Lasers. skill of getting around laser traps, which is fucking incredible. <clears throat> and you look back at it and you're like like the CGI and stuff they use like wasn't that good but it doesn't really matter cuz you're kind of like I I can suspend my disbelief on this one this is fucking cool. <laughs> <laughs> I 
All I can think about when hearing entrapment is just the workaholics episode. Yeah. <laughs> Catherine Zeta Jones. You know what? That's, that's actually I mean, that episode is a whole play on, you know, the heist, the break in that all of those tropes and that formula as well. You know, something we another deviation of the formula we didn't talk about is um like the break in, right? Where um, it's not robbers sneaking into a house and you're following the viewpoint of the robbers. You were following the viewpoint of the people who are having their home invaded, right? And obviously that's a key point of a lot of horror movies is the home invasion, right? We've talked about, you know, strangers on this podcast, but even stuff like Panic Room, right? Like Panic Room is a heist movie from the other person's perspective where their home is being Mm -hmm. broken into. And they're like, hey, like steal my shit if you want to, but like leave me alone. And that's a, an interesting term that you see quite a bit. There's definitely a lot of movies that follow that formula of robbers breaking in. One that really focuses on the break-in that I'm surprised we haven't mentioned and isn't on any of the lists anywhere in the subgenres of things like that is uh, The Italian Job. Yeah. Yeah, The Italian Job is is both the original and the remake. I actually think they're both good for different reasons. Mm-hmm. They're, they're very different from each other. Um the old Italian job has a car chase scene that I want to say goes for 15 plus minutes and nobody talks. Like it's oh, just, wow. I love that. Like it's, it's very much up your alley. Um, Riley, there's another movie that's a lot like that called Ronin that has Robert De Niro in it. Mm-hmm. That has up into that point was the longest, most complicated car chase in movies. Um, oh, it has since has since been, you know, beaten, I think, but, I mean, for its time, it was groundbreaking. Um, I forget how we got on this topic, Ty. You were talking about... Um, the break-ins. Um, and the break-ins are what I... The breaking into a house is what I think really defined the Italian job. Yes, yes, yes. Sorry, you're right. We're talking about the Italian job. Yeah, so the, yes. the Italian job is an interesting one because it is a heist, right? But it is... It's at this time, it's personal. Mm-hmm. Right, and the new one is this time it's personal. The old one is more just general heist in general. Um, but they're what they're stealing is, and they have to do like a con as part of it, which I mm-hmm. always think is an interesting element. We didn't talk about that, like that someone has to pretend to be somebody they're not. The Ocean's movies do that really well. Yeah. Italian Job, they have Charlize Theron like play the honey trap, you know what I mean, kind of part. So there's all these little intricacies of the, of these different types of movies that, that make them so fun. All right. So to get into our movies, uh, so our three picks for this, I picked Lupin the third castle of Cagliostro, uh, which is Hayao Miyazaki's first film. Uh, Jeff picked the killing by Stanley Kubrick and Riley picked fast five, which uh, was Justin Lin. Uh, I believe did he so. direct fast five. Mm-hmm. Correct. So I will, I'll get us started. And so your, some background on Castle of Cagliostro. Everybody know, I, everybody, everyone who knows who he is knows Hayao Miyazaki from Studio Ghibli. Uh, you know, Spirited Away, Totoro, um, Princess Mononoke, all of the, Kiki's uh, Delivery Service, all of that. Um, that's become what Miyazaki's really been known for. But this other franchise uh, was, uh, you know, Lupin the Third, based off a, I believe, French, um, like French story 
about this master thief or an actual like historical master thief that they took the idea and ran with. And so Miyazaki's first feature is Castle of Cagliostro, which opens um, with Lupin and his partner, his friend, uh, finishing up a job. And that's how we're introduced. They're being chased on the highway. They get away. Um, their car is full of money. And uh, eventually they realize that all of the bills are counterfeit. And they're these master counterfeits that have been associated with the Castle of Cagliostro. Eventually we determine, and that becomes the target, um, is finding, you know, going to the castle, finding the, this printing mill or printing press, whatever it is for, you know, counterfeits, uh, and, you know, doing this job. Eventually we find out, one, Lupin has tried to break in and steal these before, um, like steal these masters and the equipment for the counterfeiting. And while he is there, uh, Lupin also gets embroiled in this whole scandal of um, royalty and, like, uh, family bloodlines and a princess who is, uh, it's a Targaryen Blackfire situation of the main branch and the cadet branch. And somebody from the cadet branch is trying to arrange a marriage with her to, you know, take all of the wealth, take the power, take the status, and halfway through... It becomes, uh, instead of the focus being all of this counterfeiting equipment, the job that Lupin never finished before, now the job is getting this princess, this duchess, whatever. She, she's a princess. Uh, getting her out of there. And, you know, it is very whimsical. It's very, you know, it's it's an anime movie. I guess I thought that went without saying, but I probably should clarify. Um, it is anime. It is not live action. Uh, but it's... It was my first time watching it. I thought it was absolutely phenomenal. I really loved it. And I do want to dive into the rest of the Lupin series. So I found out that its origins are actually from a manga series. Um, and do you know the the author's name who created the manga series? I do not. His name His name is Monkey Punch. That's what the author goes by. That's fantastic. Which is pretty great. He, he helped write the the movie with Aizaki. Oh, you know what? I did see I did see Monkey Punch come up, and I just assumed that was a studio. That's really cool to know that is the mangaka who created this series and worked yep. with uh, Miyazaki on the movie. Yep. What did you guys think of this? I actually really loved this movie, um, even though I fell asleep like three separate occasions <laughs> trying to get through this. Um, and the reason I did was part of the reason I loved it. I, it was just like, there was something like almost whimsical about this movie. Um, oh yeah. You know, there's, there's not really, well, I, I guess maybe later on, but there's really not a serious bone in this movie skeleton. Um, no, e even at the end, like it is not. And it, it, doesn't take itself seriously. It approaches it earnestly um, and tries to make a fun movie, but it obviously does not take itself seriously at all. Um, but I really liked it. Um, I think one thing that it was missing, you know, and obviously this is just because it became, or it became before everything else was that, you know, the, the trademark sound or the score that all the other studio movies have. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, if they were to ever, like, go back and, you know, rescore the movie, I think it would be right up there with the rest of them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. 
I did. I liked what the score was, but it isn't. It doesn't really stand on its own like a lot of those other scores. Right. Right. Something I do really like. Um, and so let's talk about some of the hallmarks this movie has. So, you know, we have the reveal that Lupin has tried this job before. We have the cat and the mouse uh, with Inspector Zenigata, who has been chasing him from job after job uh, and then recruiting a team and then changing his target partway through to be getting the princess out of there instead of um, instead of, you know, his original goal. Mm-hmm. And, oh, you have the original heist falling apart, too, because he thinks he's going to get the princess out of there and then gets completely cornered and has to cut and run and everything, you know, it did not go as planned at all. And then they fall back, regroup, and change the focus for the heist. You also have the initial heist not going well because he finds out that they're counterfeit bills. Yes. So he has two things kind of fall apart on him, which is interesting. And the, um, I would assume she was someone from a previous job, already on the inside of Cagliostro. She was she was one of those who really felt like a Deuter antagonist, um, a lot like Tess in the Oceans movie. Uh, while not being a full-on romantic, uh, you know, there's a much deeper relationship between Danny and Tess than there is between Lupin and this other person, but it is implied there might be a history between them, um, but also the history was kind of second to this rivalry they had um, but mm-hmm. she's here separately and willing to kind of overlook what he's doing and also give him a chance to get out. And also, hello. Yes. Also, hello. Yeah, it's, it's I'm going to butcher the name, but it's Fujiko Mine is the on-off lover of mm-hmm. Lupin, basically. That's what, that's what Wikipedia says, on-off lover. So we obviously have not, I, I personally, I don't know if you have, Ty, this is the only Lupin the third I've seen. Same. But it's like... It looks like there is a big list of movies and shows and manga kind of in this. Where does it show where, like, are those in order? Does it show where this falls in the order of those? Um, I just had it up. Give me one second and I will pull it up for you. If I remember right, this was not the first Lupin movie. It doesn't um, but seem the like first it. first like, one I, they had um Miyazaki on yeah I just I I got the vibe at the start that you know you kind of get the vibe that you know you should know who these side characters are Mm -hmm. yeah you have Lupin the Third Castle of Cagliostro is a graphic novel series first um but there is there was a Lupin the Third TV series that came out in 1971 ah okay and then as far as movies go Sorry, I'm trying to flip this movie. Lupin the Third, Bye Bye Lady Liberty is first. But then it looks like there's a bunch of other TV movies before you get to Castle Cagliostro. So I don't know where you would consider this. Because sometimes like a TV movie. Right. Yeah. You don't know where you're actually considering it as. But it's it's part of a long line, I think. Cagliostro really... was 1979. Okay. Something I really wanted to highlight here, uh, I think my favorite part of the movie, and my favorite heist element of it, is when he when he does the diversion with the inspector, um, who he immediately... So if you have not seen, 
Uh, you know, the inspector is in the castle looking for Lupin, um, goes and talks to like the top brass, the security, uh, and then kind of storms off after they turn him away. And then Lupin is about to get caught and, you know, uh, disguises himself to look very similarly to the investigator. And he, <laughs> he tells them that he asked if Lupin just came through here um, and said, you, you know, you fools, he was disguised as me, disguised as the inspector. And so they go off and they go and chase after the inspector, um, leaving Lupin to move freely through the castle. And I think that is... That that's what really that's the kind of creativity that's the kind of stuff you like out of a heist movie. Okay, so I have a question, not to derail our conversation. No, you're good. I got the impression through one of the interactions between Lupin and Zenigata that they were related. I looked that up; they are not. Um, okay, so that was just like a throwaway. Lupin. Line. So it sounds like Lupin says those things to like frustrate and irritate Zenigata. Okay. Because I thought he said, like, I thought they were, like, father and son. For yeah, a so he bit. calls him, like, father and pops, but it's I think it's more of, like, an old man type thing. Got it. Got it. Okay. That's good to know. Because I, I did go and look that up. I was like, okay, so is this his dad? And I thought it was, you know, I thought it was the nose from uh, from Ocean's 13. Right. Where, you know, Matt Damon, finally, when Linus finally does his job and gets picked up by this agent, and then it's his dad, and he's like, okay, so, you know. Did it work? Is that you know critiquing his play and everything like that? And I thought we were yeah. getting a situation like that. Yeah. Honestly, the the son thief and the father uh, being a cop is basically also the inverted uh, Ocean's Twelve. Where yeah. The daughter is an Interpol cop, <laughs> and the dad is a master thief. I hope we're not spoiling the plot of Ocean's Twelve for anybody who has not I... seen it all these years later. Didn't we also review Oceans Twelve early on? Uh, I don't. No, I feel like I would have remembered I don't think that. We've done an Oceans. No. I don't think so. We At one point, we it. talked about Oceans Twelve a we've, lot. We've definitely had fights about it. I think is is definitely true. Um, yeah. So I mean, I think Cagliostro is is such a good pick for this heist genre. I think that it it has, like you said many of the major beats right it has the meeting of the master thief it's got an initial heist it has the heist target which is chosen largely based on the fact of the results of the first heist you've got the complications the execution the heist goes wrong you have the impact of the heist um and then you have kind of where that cements them off to go on to additional adventures so a great example of the genre absolutely and obviously we're huge fans of animation on the podcast but also shows that you can make a movie that's very compelling that fits this genre and you can make it in any format. It doesn't have mm-hmm. to be live action. The animation plays just as well as any other film here. And I think that's what that's what's really fun because there's something about heist movies and not all of them, but um, so many of them like Oceans uh, and Italian Job are so ad- exaggerated and stylized that it, that just lends itself really well to animation. Yeah, there is definitely a a subset of heist movies that are not necessarily like family movies, but they are light action, right? Where you get a little bit of like the, you get the character acting, you get an engaging plot. Maybe you get a little bit of like comedy in there, but it's not a full on comedy movie. So like, it's very, you know, national treasure. Yeah. yeah national. Oh, treasure. Yeah, Honestly, we haven't talked about national treasure at all. A great example. 
a noble heist film because he's trying to put it into a museum that you could you could even consider Indiana Jones as heist. And films. I meant to bring that up earlier. I didn't know if we would call Indiana Jones a heist movie or not um, because it's. I I feel like adventure movie really gets its own category here, and Indiana Jones is such a better exemplifier of the adventure movie than it is of the heist movie. I think the big thing that differentiates those and makes them not heist movies is that they are a very close cousin and that they are treasure movies, right? Yeah. Treasure movies. Okay. Yes. There's generally not an owner of the treasure, right? Once you find it, it is yours. Now there, (laughs) there may be, there may be a consequence for disturbing the treasure, but it's not the same as like a specific owner who no longer has the treasure. Ooh, I don't, so treasure or heist movie, I'm going to throw a name out here and you tell me which one you guys think this falls into. (laughs) Sahara. I'm trying to remember the plot points of Sahara. I think it's a treasure movie. I haven't seen Sahara in so So long. He he is like a historian and a treasure hunter and he is obsessed with finding this Civil War Ironside out in the Saharan (laughs) Desert. Now that now it's out that he went all the way across the ocean, and he drifted <laughs> across the ocean and landed here. No, he actually stopped halfway through the ocean and filmed uh, Fool's Gold, and then went to the Sahara. <laughs> Which, yeah, those movies are almost like interchangeable. <laughs> well, when you first started describing Sahara, I thought you were actually doing a bit where you're act- <laughs> you're going to describe Fool's Gold. <laughs> No, I think you're. I think you've hit on something very true, though, which is that the treasure genre and the heist genre are so close, mm-hmm. right? Where there are steps they have to follow, but in a treasure one, it's not. It's like they are the antagonist special. is going for the same thing instead of right. trying to. Yeah, right, right, and it is. It is like a there is something. Mm, virtuous about the treasure hunter in Mm -hmm. that all of the clues are available to everyone but they're the person who finally figured out it's more of a puzzle than it is a crime right yeah and i think that's it but it's so they're so close right that it's you could have elements of both in either type of movie make a matthew mcconaughey uh treasure movie that is just the story of hobby lobby stealing those like ancient (laughs) ancient artifacts what if you had like what if you did like the opposite where you had like people of the culture breaking into Hobby Lobby stores and oh like my going God. underneath into the basement to get the shit back? <laughs> I would watch that. Absolutely. So I think um I don't have much else to say about Castle of Cagliostro other than that, especially for being the seventies, the animation is fantastic. It's so, so solid. Um yeah. it's you know, they're it's it's still not on par with what we saw in the eighties with Akira, you know, things like that. But this is the kind of thing that really set the tone for anime, what animation in general could look like going forward. Yeah, absolutely. And then do you guys oh. have anything else to say, or are we moving on to our next movie? I have a plot point I have to ask about. Yes, absolutely. Uh if all that is required, are we are we allowed to do spoilers? Yeah, yeah, we need okay. spoilers. If all that is required to open the secret mechanism that is in the tower is to have both rings, 
why does he need to get married? Why does the Count need to get married? I think to have legal claim over it. Because I think he... And, you know, that... I think that could break A lot into, of people like, challenging his rule within his own Grand Duchy. The, I mean, the, the treasure is inside the realms of his kingdom. his duchy, though, until the marriage happens. Because, so he's been, he is of the cadet branch. So it's, uh, it's Targaryens and Blackfires, it's Starks and Karstarks. Um, so his family, they've essentially always been the bannermen to the princess's family. And so Got now, it. through this, through the marriage, he can now have a legal claim to the title, to the duchy, to the land, to the treasure, the um, treasure. all of that. Got it. Okay. All right. Fair enough. All right. So, Jeff, tell us about the killing. So I picked the killing um, because I thought it would it would balance out well with the stuff that we're looking at. We've got kind of an older film. Um, so the killing was made in 1956. Uh, it's early Kubrick. Um, so you don't have, um, it's not, you know, quite as, um, weird. Yeah. Not quite as weird. Yeah. It it is a more normal Kubrick film. Mm -hmm. Um, pretty straight, like not, not a lot of like subversion necessarily in this one. So we pick an early movie with the 1950s. We've got late seventies with Cagliostro. Then we've got fast five, which I believe is 2011. So I thought it would be a good, uh, kind of fit with the other films that we've picked. Um, I like The Killing. I, I picked The Killing after seeing it super recently. So The Killing was on my heisty caper film list. Um, I knew that a lot of people really liked it. It's very well liked on Letterboxd. I think it's it's an average of 3.9, which is very high. Um, so the, the plot of The Killing is that you have kind of a master thief in Johnny Clay who's recruiting people to be part of his crew to knock off a horse track. Um, so this is, I thought the killing kind of fit into, um, let's see where I put it. I kind of put it in, are we the baddies? Because the robbers are stealing it for their own enjoyment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Johnny Clay is actually trying to, to do one last job. It is a one last job movie, mm-hmm. which I think does usually fit into, are we the baddies? Um, he's about to get married. He wants to go straight, but he wants to set them up, you know, well with the money. So he recruits, um, a sharpshooter. Um, he recruits a crooked cop, a bartender, somebody who works at the um, track as a teller, and then he also um, recruits a couple of additional like muscle men, which is one of my favorite characters that we'll talk about yes. in a little <laughs> yeah. bit. The teller, um, who I am convinced is part of the Howard family tree. <laughs> yeah, I, it's a it's a great character for sure. So then you have the, you have the teller. The teller's name is George. And a major plot point within the movie is that George has a beautiful wife who is sleeping around on it's him. Two-timing him. Two-timing him. And he kind of knows, but he also kind of hopes that it isn't true. And the, the wife is, like, really fucking mean to him in, like, a very 50s way. Like, I, I have a note about both George and his wife. They're very much acting. Yeah. <laughs> why, why are you being mean to me, George? <laughs> I'm just a little old lady. I don't know nothing about heists. Um, but anyway, George's wife, and I, I forget George's wife's name. Let me pull it up for a second. Um you have, I think it's Colleen Gray. I think it's, is it Faye? Maybe that's the, her name. Or Sherry. No, Sherry is the wife's name. 
Um, and she essentially like finds out from George that there's going to be this heist because George is like, I'll be able to afford to get you nice yeah. things and like, you'll be happy and we can get out of this house. And she's like, well, how are you doing that? So then she finds out there's a heist. It complicates things. She tells the person that she's two timing with to basically try to stick them up. And so complication ensues essentially. Um, and I think it's a really interesting movie because it's got a lot of the hallmarks, but it's, it's so early, right? You have mm-hmm. this movie is 1956, which I think the first quote-unquote heist movie that kind of gets considered as a heist is like in the late 40s. Um, so it's right around the time that the, the genre really starts to sort of solidify and get its like constant beats, right? And then so this Jeff, is a great example. Kind of on that note, sorry. Go do ahead. you know when the original Oceans came out? Uh, that's a great question. I can find out. I believe it's probably in the late 50s, early 60s, because it's got the Rat Pack. Yeah, you know, of Height of the Rat Pack power is when that came out. I just don't remember when that is. Yeah, the original Ocean's Eleven came out in 1960, so it was four years after the killing. Okay. Yep, yep. So um, I picked the killing because it does fit these beats. Um, it very much has, like, the you know the meeting of the master thief that runs everything you've got the assembly of the crew not everybody in the crew even knows the whole plan like they're just being paid for their portions um and then you've got the execution of the heist the complication Uh, since we're doing spoilers uh the end of the killing does not go well for anybody right basically they are handing off the the suitcase that has all the money in it uh, Johnny Clay like gets away with it, gets all the way to the airport, and then realizes that he can't check the bag because it's too big. And so he's like, "Well, fuck!" And then he like basically tries to find another way to do it. And then they, or no, he he doesn't want to check the bag because it's full mm-hmm. of money, but he can't bring it on the plane because it's too big. Yeah. So he decides right. to check it. The bag falls open on the runway. All the money scatters out because the plane engines are going. And he's like, "Fuck!" Tries to bolt, gets caught. So like, it's a very much. It's a, are we the baddies? And one of the formulas that happens in these movies is, does do the baddies get away with it, right? Do the people who are committing a morally incorrect act get rewarded for that act? And that is something that I think is very key to the genre as well. If it's clear that nobody in the heist crew is a good person or doing it for a good reason, generally they don't get away with it. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I think is is true in all heist movies, but I think is especially true in early heist movies because more of those movies are like morality plays, right? Yeah. About crime doesn't pay, you know, you shouldn't be doing it, you know, that kind of thing. What I really like uh, about the killing in that regard, and as you guys were talking about, you know, this being kind of different from what we know is Stanley Kubrick, like his hallmarks, I do really like though that there's an element of nihilism here that I think it is more of it's more of a look at that nihilism and the you know whatever you try and do you know it's not gonna work I think it is more of that than it is of a morality play um here and I I could be coloring that because I know later Stanley Kubrick and the kind of things he likes to delve into with his themes but I mean he uh I'm forgetting his name. Uh, main, you know, our protagonist. Um, Johnny Clay. Johnny Clay, that's it. He has the opportunity to try and get away. And, you know, she tries to get him to take off and, like, run. And he's just like, it's the same either way. 
And I think that's a really like that bit of dialogue of him saying, you know, that it's the same either way because he lost the money. So he's essentially, you know, he's either imprisoned by his failure and, you know, even if he gets away, he didn't win or just accepting that he lost and, you know, turn himself in. I think that's a really, really great way to end this movie and very much a hallmark of, you know, the later things we see from Stanley Kubrick. Right. Right. Um, It's interesting because this movie is credited as actually Quentin Tarantino's like influence for doing Reservoir Dogs. Totally see it. Like he, he says that this movie was the influence for doing it. Um, It's also like, it's not Kubrick's first film, but it's kind of considered his first big film yeah. as well. So um, he basically got not like discovered, but he basically like met a producer who like wanted to basically break off on his own. And they, they created, it was um, James B. Harris and they created Harris Kubrick pictures. And like, that was basically like the production company that did a lot of Kubrick's stuff like as they went on so this is kind of considered like kind of kubrick's like real big break into film and so that's why it is one of his more straight laced films that more Mm. like regular plot things like that um he's not showing off as much with some of the more uh, avant-garde stuff he's just doing a straight film and I i think it shows that you know when he wanted to do that he could do it really well i think the non-linear timeline is a big thing too that um, very much, one, 100% influence Reservoir Dogs. I think that's probably the biggest influence on Reservoir Dogs. But two, that like that's the kind of thing that makes so much sense for Kubrick to do, is that nonlinear timeline where everything comes together and you see it coalesce into the final heist. And it's I really love that about this movie. I also really like the narration used to set up each step and how it carries on throughout the entire movie. It doesn't just stop after they finish planning the heist. Right. Riley, what did you think about this one? Oh man, this one was right up my alley. Um, you know, I like the whole setup. I like the, I like the old timey overacting we get from Sherry and everyone. Um, and you know, kind of like what we've been talking about. I, I like that it ends in a failure Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that no one really gets away with it. Um, you know, we do have some unfortunate 1950s, uh, slur usage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. even then though, I do think that was, I mean, you know, I'm not the right person to speak on this, but just as a viewer, it did seem like Kubrick was making a point about that of, you know, the, the parking attendant, uh, who, you know, is a black man. Like the parking attendant is for the first time, it seems like he feels like he's being treated like an actual person. And then to have this just reprehensible killer, you know, drop the slurs that he uses and um, totally dismisses him like that. I think it was meant to upset you the way it did, because it like watching that scene was a very upsetting because it was like, man, like the guy, was so thankful to be just treated like a person and then had the rug pulled out from under him. Right. And that's another one where like, you know, we, we were potentially rooting for the heist to be successful. Right. And then the sharpshooter acts like a fuck like that. And you're like, 
I don't care what happens to him. Mm-hmm. And then ultimately, like, he dies as part of the heist, and you're like, great. You know what I mean? So, like, mm-hmm. it is an interesting thing where, at least in the film, the character who who makes the incorrect moral choice and the reprehensible choice of using the slurs, like, immediately has his comeuppance, like, five minutes later. And I think, isn't it the parking attendant that ends up shooting him? Well, I don't remember if the parking attendant ends it's up like shooting him. like a security him, guard there. But the part, it is a direct result of his actions, and right. had, he would have been successful had he just treated the parking attendant like a person. And, you know, because it's it's when the parking attendant is trying to get him to, like, sign the horseshoe. And the parking attendant, you know, storms off after that, tosses a horseshoe down. And that's what blows his tire and inevitably right. leads to him being killed. And so it's right. it's he, you know, he dug his own grave there. And right. it's, you know, he could have gotten away otherwise. So I, I do really like that element of it. What else? There, there's another thing I want to talk about with this one. It's not really plot related. And I'm going to try to get the na- guy's name right. Um, who I'm trying to get the wrestler yeah. and his name that was a part of it. I think it's... All-time fight choreo. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I you say that, but like... I mean, for when, 1950, when he slams the bartender into the bar, like yeah. that is a very like physical scene. There is a lot of weight to that hit, and that's it's sold so well. Like yeah. it's phenomenal. I love that, and I like I had a specific note about that. Like it is for the time, like very violent and physical, and you know some of the other choreo is you know funny now, but um, but just that some one, of the editing around it. Yeah. yeah, really. Not so that much one scene is just so the slam is so good. Yeah. So that actor, uh, so in in the film, it's his name is Maurice. Um, the actual actor's name is Nicholas Nestor Cola Corani. He's Georgian from the country Georgia, not the state. Um, and he was, he actually was a professional wrestler. Okay. Um, he was, his ring name was Nick the wrestler. (laughs) Um, and he also played chess in real life. So they basically were just like, Hey, let's get this chess playing wrestler to play a chess playing wrestler in the, in the film. And I think it's so funny because a couple of things, one, I think you can tell in the film that he's had training either choreography mm-hmm. training or that he was a wrestler right and i also think it's funny in that the type of wrestler body that you had in the 50s is so specific it's like it's, right it's like bulky it's bulky and hairy and it is the opposite of cut it's just big mass. it's mass they're, baby they're never like tall they're always like these little bulldogs <laughs> And he's like, I will fight for you, Johnny Clay. Like, <laughs> it's just such a specific type of person and character that you you just don't get in a film like this. Especially because, like, in the film, he seemed like he could have been in his, like, late 40s or 50s, right? Like, it wasn't like he got, like, a young buck. He's just like, I'm going to get the old, like, the guy who can just start a fight and take on 10 cops at once, you know, type of thing. It's just, it's just so specific and something I really, really like about this film. It's a small piece, but I love it. It it adds a lot of character to a movie that could have been dry, like without the pieces like that, without those character flourishes that Kubrick added by pulling in these specific people and adding these specific pieces to the plot. 
Right. So overall, I mean, I think it, it, it's a great heist film. It's a good example of an early heist film if you kind of want to get some perspective. And even though it's in black and white, I think the way it's filmed and the, the shots they use and the contrast that they have in the black and white made me forget it was in black and white yeah. like, quite a bit during the movie. Like I feel like There's a lot of depth added through the yeah. use of black and white there. And not that I view films that are black and white are, are distracting necessarily, but like I can understand why some people like tune it out a little bit. But mm. once this film gets past like maybe the first like 10 minutes and like you kind of get past like the George and Sherry, like, Oh my, like kind of that part of it. I think it starts to really go. Like, yes. The, the, the film really takes off and it feels very modern after that. So I definitely well, think if anybody is a little bit on the fence about watching this one, you definitely should. It's on Amazon prime. If yes. you want to watch it. Uh, something I wanted to talk about, like it's, it's like how, you know, watching a movie and just turning the saturation way down on your TV so your TV is in black and white, like if you're using a CRT, like that is by, you know, changing your picture to be in black and white is much different than a movie that is built around being filmed in black and white. And that's something Kubrick does so well. Like he, he's a a genius when it comes to filmmaking and very much – knows how to make that work and take advantage of, you know, shooting on black and white film. Yep. <clears throat> All right. Anything else on this film before we get into fast five? I, I've got nothing. All right. Riley, why don't you kick us off on fast five? All right. Fast five considered by most to be the best of the fast franchise. Uh, picks up after, uh, Fast and Furious, not The Fast and the Furious, so <laughs> F4. Um, this, is also, this is also when kind of the franchise transitions um, or kind of rebrands as, you know, these, these uh, I guess, heist movies more or less. Mm-hmm. Um, heist ensemble movies, you know, it's the family arc we're in the middle of. Um. Anyway, so we bust, you know, you have Brian and, uh, oh God, I can't remember, Mia, they break uh, Dom out of uh, the prison bus, basically are free falling through Central America. They all end up in Brazil. Um, Basically, Dom comes up with the idea to, you know, to set their lives up. They're going to steal from this drug lord in Brazil. Um but not so fast, my friends. Dwayne the Rock Johnson uh, comes in, says it doesn't matter what your heist is, uh, and uh, you know he's trying to chase down Dom. Uh, you know Dom and Brian decide they're going to need a little help. They bring in pretty much every person you love from the Fast franchise up to that point. Um, you know you have Han, you have. Uh, Roman Pierce, you have Ludacris, who is n- now a tech genius. You have uh, Gal Gadot, who is, I don't know what role you'd call her in this. The femme um, fatale. Yeah, yeah. Honey that's pie. it. Um, the whole crew, um, they put together a heist to steal this money. Um, and the brothers, too, who was, I forget, the the Dominicans? Yeah, I mean, so that's, from, first that's from Fast Four. Okay. Um, they were, they were part four, of yeah. the gas stealing crew. Okay. Um, 
No Letty in this one, um, which is Letty a big had, deal. Yeah, Letty had died at this one, and Dom quickly falls in love with a lady cop. Um, wee, so wee, I, wee. <laughs> I have to ask, like, was the... Because it's in four that Letty dies, right? Uh-huh. Well, yeah, yeah kind of. Quote, quote, unquote. No one's ever dead. Right. Yeah, well, at, uh, at that point in the narrative, we are sold right. that Letty is dead. Right, right. right. So is that, do we have any idea, is that like a contract thing that she didn't want to be in the fifth one or they had just decided to do that plot point? Um, I think, yeah, I think it's, I think it was a, here's a soft reboot. We're going to kill one of your, your OGs. And then it made so much money. And then they're like, oh, fuck. Yeah. (laughs) I do Uh, like, sorry, I don't want to. No, go ahead. Let's hear it. Ty, I think you had said. After rewatching, that you you had some some good notes on it. Yeah. So something. I mean, I think this is when you you talk about how they kind of rebranded here after the reboot in this movie. But not only that, I think they have never nailed their tone more than in Fast Five. Right. Like it is so pulpy. Like it is. It it's a pulp novel and just put in you know, movie form and it's so fun. It's so dumb. And it embraces that with just some of the dumbest dialogue that like fits and it wouldn't fit otherwise. And I'm talking about things. I'm not talking about like bad writing. I'm talking about things like, uh, you know, Hey, you want the good news or the bad news first? He's like, I like my dessert first. All right. Now give me the, give me the veggies. And And it just works. What are you saying? And why does it work? You have, you, you know, you have, uh, you know, you have the rock, smashing dom's charger in their safe house and dom just fully serious he's big mistake or you know them diving 50 feet down through a sheet metal roof and then immediately (laughs) saying i'm pregnant (laughs) and they know this is like they know how it plays and they just take so much advantage of it and it's so good like yeah I, and so I felt fun. like this was the best example of a heist movie that of the three that we talked about tonight. And I think I personally think one of the top tier, you know, we talked about our montages. Um, they're, you know, casing the joint and then they have the awesome uh, more or less drifting montage. Yes. Of how they're going to get through the parking garage. Yeah, the, the training for the heist is the the biggest of the three films that we've talked about that's another hallmark that I mean, we talked about like training slash recon for the heist but the practice where they like set something up in order to like actually practice physically doing what they're going to be doing is never more prevalent than it is here in fast five mm-hmm. um what was i gonna say oh one of the best endings uh Dancy Kaduro, baby. Yeah, it delivered us with an with an absolute anthem. Uh, <laughs> that has you know, everyone... like it has become so ingrained now. Like it's it's become just like a wet, a normal wedding song. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I think another thing that this movie does really well. You know, we talked about the pulpiness of it. I totally agree. I think that other movies that try to do this tone 
don't do it well because they don't take it far enough. Mm-hmm. And, and this movie, I think, like you mentioned, in the Fast franchise, is probably the best balance of plot point to dialogue to the way it's like shot and edited. Like, there's some stuff in the the later Fast movies where like it, it is ridiculous, but it is like potentially a little bit over the line of ridiculous. Where like even for these types of movies, this is a little far. It's still fun in those other movies, but I would say this is the best combo of the grounded with the ridiculousness, with the pulpiness. It is also, in my opinion, uh, maybe the best type of vehicle for Gal Gadot to be in. Yes. Like, just let Gal Gadot be in ridiculous, pulpy films that don't take themselves too seriously, because that's the problem. If you put her in a film that's trying to be too serious or if it's not like a joke then her performances come across really grating i actually thought in this one i thought she was really i liked fun. her i she and worked, han in worked this. together awesome ha- yeah i mean han bolsters so much of that relationship this movie like it's so great to have han in this uh something really quick because i do want to talk more about han uh but the talking about the tone in later movies and why it's so perfect in this, it's because it's still so earnest in this movie and later movies it's in on the joke and it's like, all right, let's try and go to the moon. Like it's, we're going to go to space now. Like this is when they really, they nailed it and it's so earnest and it's like, we're here having fun and here is our dumb pulpy story and we can't wait for you to enjoy it with us. And there's no expectation of trying to top itself at that point. And we're just, we're having fun with this story they put together. I would say six and seven do a good job. Um, I think if you look at, you know, I think you have a second trilogy there. I think you have one, two, three kind of stand independently. And then you have four, which, you know, was testing the waters. Can we bring this back? And then you have the five, six, seven, which is the whole crew. And then we lose Paul Walker and then we get eight, nine. And I feel like at eight is where we lose or kind of where they, yeah, you know, they kind of say, well, how far can we take this? Yeah. Um, And people will still make it the number one movie of all time. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. I I think you're totally right that five, six, seven feel of a piece in their tone. Yeah. And then even is seven, the one where they sevens, where they jump between the, that's what I was thinking of. And that's the, I think that's the point where they start trying to top themselves. Right, yeah. which would have been perfect to end on. You had the perfect ending to end the series. Yeah. Um, and when, when does Kurt complain. Russell get involved? He's six. seven or eight. Oh, really? Six. He's in six. Seven. Seven. Yeah, seven. Because he dropped... Because uh, <laughs> Jason Statham and uh, Vin Diesel are having their game of chicken under the bridge. Oh, is that and the one where they like ram each other's car? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, we could have a whole podcast on just the fast movies. And oh man, <laughs> yes, and I would, I would love to do that. So, Let's... what I wanted to mention about Han is that you know, so many, so many legacy sequels, reboots, whatever, you know, are trying to avoid their history with certain movies. I mean, the Halloween franchise does it. The Texas Chainsaw franchise does it. All these franchises try and avoid certain entries in their canon. 
and you know delegitimize them bury them ignore them erase them whatever whereas the fast and the furious franchise takes arguably its best movie in my opinion that many would have requested to remove from the canon that's fast and the furious tokyo drift uh but i love tokyo drift it's always been my favorite fast movie um but you know you bring in han you make a drifting a central element of um of beating this camera in fast five and so it's so it's the fast five is taking all of these things people love whether everyone loves them or not but somebody out there loves different pieces of all these movies and it's it's embracing the best parts of everything in the fast franchise up to that point oh for sure I think you're, you've got a really good point there, which is that I think I forget, um, Riley, I think you call this like an ensemble movie. Mm-hmm. And that is a type of heist movie that is we've kind of talked about. Right. But like there are heist movies where like the main person is the main person and there's kind of color in the background. But then in, in these types of movies, they're very similar to the Oceans movies where like the ensemble is the point. Right. Like you yeah. get time for Bernie Mac to shine or you get time for. Scott Kahn and Casey Affleck to be crazy Utah brothers in this one, you get these really cool duos as well, right? Like Paul Walker talks to Tyrese and Ludacris, but, but not really, right? Like he talks to Dom and he talks to his, who's his wife? Mia. Mia thank you. Um, and then like Tyrese and Ludacris talk to each other. Han and Gal Gadot talk to each other. The Portuguese brothers or the Dominican brothers talk to each other. You know what I mean? Like they kind of have these little duo pairs that they end up doing the movie through. And I think that's very interesting in that, yes, they're part of the crew and yeah, they, they talk together, but it's really more about these like little interpersonal relationships that they kind of tell the movie through those like views, which I think is kind of cool. Right. I'm just going to mention this, not to do more dwelling on Han, but it's so funny that Han is just no. This this relates to the topic because Han is just like it's the same as um, Brad Pitt's character in the Oceans franchise, like a, a down to just constantly eating. Like it's all there. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> I totally agree. Um, something we haven't talked about to kind of round out the heist portion of this film. We really haven't talked about the central heist in this film, <laughs> which is is honestly incredible, right? So, Riley, do you want to kind of set up the scene for us? Um, yeah, so to go with kind of another trope or, you know, a characteristic of heist movies, the original plan goes to shit. Um, they realize that they're not going to be able to pull it off, you know, in style. Um so they actually, so what, well, let me back, I got to backtrack a little farther. Um, the Rock has captured our heroes at this point. Um, their crew gets ambushed by the cartel. The Rock loses like all of his men. Um, so the Rock decides to put differences aside and team up and help rob the, you know, the drug lord. Um so in, in typical rock fashion, uh, they decide they're not going to do it with style. They're just going to go in, crash through the safe wall. <laughs> uh, they hook up two chargers uh, to the safe. 
and drag it out of the uh, police station. All the money <laughs> hooked up to two cars, which is just a phenomenal set piece. Oh, yeah. Um, and they drag it all through the city, um, eventually completing a switch. This was always the plan. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, yeah, so basically they get to a point, you know, the... Uh, the all is lost moment. They're on a bridge. Cops on both sides. Dom has to be the hero and cuts Brian loose um, and starts somehow managing to this this car that <laughs> two of them couldn't pull the safe can now pull by himself uh, because family and he starts taking out all the cars. Uh, more or less succeeds. He kills the drug lord by smashing him with the safe, using it as a wrecking ball. Yeah. Um, and then Hobbs and him kind of have a, you know, you get 24 hours, uh, and I'll find you. And he's like, nah, you won't. (laughs) Um, and then we find out that the safe that Dom was dragging was empty, um, only to reveal that they pulled off the perfect switch, uh, with the rest of the crew and a very well-placed garbage truck. Um, and then Q, Danza, Kaduro, everyone has their $10 million, uh, and yeah, and then we head off into six. So where, I mean, what were you guys' thoughts on that final heist? It's all so, great. It's, it's incredible. It's very electric. I love the way they did it. The fact that they're like, we're just going to use the object that we're heisting as a weapon is incredible. Just to spoil the party, uh, the towing capacity of a Dodge <laughs> Charger is a thousand pounds. There's two of them hooked up to definitely a 10,000 pound plus safe. The safe does not have wheels. So they're just pulling raw, heavy concrete against the street concrete. And everybody's like, yep. It's steel. It's steel. <laughs> it's, it's. They've sanded so the once, bottom once of it, it at that going, point. It can grind. Yeah. Yeah. The problem I have is that they immediately are almost able to like, I know there's like a little bit of spinning, but then they like. Or just able to pull it, no problem. They have NOS. (laughs) (laughs) And then it's even, it is even funnier when they cut it and it's just one Dodge Charger pulling around a 10,000. That's it. I did think, though, that is something that the Fast franchise has continued to do, right? Is the cars they have end up becoming superhuman, right? It's not Mm -hmm. just that they're. The cars are supercharged, so they have NOS or whatever. The cars are capable of accepting the will of the driver. And like they can they can go faster, they can pull things simply because Dom is willing the car to do so. And that is something that I love. And they they never talk about, right? It's not there's nothing mythical behind it. It's literally just Family. I need my car to do this. Yeah, it's family. And my car is able to do this because I need it to happen. Well, as one of my friends, Incredible. one of my friends put it years ago, I think when Fast Five came out, or maybe, no, I think it was six, because I was living in Kansas City and we were talking, when one of them came out, we ended up talking about the franchise. But one of my friends at work who, like, big time, like, cinephile, art house film guy, he's who I got really into horror with. We were. T- I was like, "Yeah, dude, I think I might go see the uh, new Fast and Furious movie." He's like, "Yeah, dude, they're my favorite superhero movie," because <laughs> that's what they are. Like, at, 
Absolutely. After five, they become, I mean, in five, at the end, they become superhero movies. Yeah. Heck, even in, the, well, we, we should save this for our Fast and Furious episode. Uh, <laughs> That's kind of what this one is turning into a little but bit. But in the <laughs> first, know. even in the first one, uh, Brian's, you know, lime green eclipse bricks <laughs> when he's driving back down from the race after his car, you know, his engine just shit out on him. His mm-hmm. car just stops. And they open up the hood and just smoke's pouring out. And then in the next scene, they're using it as a getaway car. (laughs) (laughs) The power of will. Incredible. God. All right. So which do we think? I think hands down, this one I think is a pretty easy one for all of us. But which movie do we think best embodies like the archetypal heist movie? Of these three, definitely Fast Five. I'm, I'd I say, say Fast Five. the The way that it's, the way that it, the plot moves, it is absolutely the most archetypal of the the three. Mm-hmm. Especially because the killing does the non-linear thing, and focuses more on like the characters than like the actual heist itself. And the and Castle of Cagliostro is very much it's anime first and then a heist movie, right. and focus more on that story it's telling. Whereas Fast Five is just through and through a heist movie altogether. Should we finish up with what we've been watching? Yeah, we never did do that. <laughs> yeah, that's we all right. going to. Start doing this format in reverse order. <laughs> we'll close out the episode and hi, welcome to. <laughs> we'll, we'll start with what we've been watching on the, uh, on the next episode, but everybody, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the new format. It definitely is a little bit longer than, uh, than we're used to. I'm sure we'll get dialed in, but I had a ton of fun with this. Uh, I hope Jeff and Riley did as well, and we hope you guys really enjoy listening. We will see you next month. Bye.